Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to 1 Kings chapter 21 as we continue in our study of Prophet, Priest, and King series on the life of Elijah. This is our seventh message in our series, and we're going to be looking at confronting injustice today as we look at 1 Kings chapter 21. Again, I want to encourage you to bring your Bible, and once again, if you need one, please let us know. We'd love to put one in your hands. Now, going back, anyone here loved, did anyone here love uh, English literature? As a senior, so I loved literature. Anyone here love the Greek tragedies, Shakespeare, things of that? Yeah. All right. So there's one of you. All right. So there's one nerd here. I mean, uh, there's one literature lover here. And I loved it. You know, we all, though, love good stories with behind the scenes drama and treachery. What's interesting, all those Greek tragedies and all those Shakespearean plays really find their, their stories and their themes find their way in stories that you and I would not even consider Shakespearean or Greek in nature. We love stories of the big, powerful man versus the little guy, and we enjoy it when the tables are turned and the Dave and Goliath, so to speak. Today's passage captures the true depths of the wickedness and depravity of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. Now, two weeks ago, when we were in our study of Elijah, we read that Elijah was having a pity party of one after God's tremendous victory over the false prophets of Baal. Expecting repentance and revival, his life instead was threatened by this evil Queen Jezebel, and Elijah lost all confidence and hope as he runs into the wilderness and he asks God to take his life. This is done. I'm no better than my forefathers. Just take me home. However, as we read, God is not done with Elijah. He's not done with this faithful servant, but he provides him with food and exercise, companionship, and a purpose to allow him to get out of his funk, this depression, this despondency, this worry and anxiety, and he resets him up. We learn that God uses people and uses his work and uses his word to encourage his children when we too struggle like Elijah with despondency or depression. God understands our state of mind and our emotions. And God works within there. And we see that God recommissions Elijah to work just as he does you and I. In today's passage, as we move to chapter 21 of 1 Kings, The scripture focuses on palace intrigue that rivals those great tragedies of the Greek and Shakespearean era. However, it takes place much before those even took place. In our passage today, we read of covetousness, greed, anger, despondency, revenge, conspiracy, slander, and even murder that leads to God's judgment and the total elimination of a family. Join with me, I'll be here on the monitor as well, as we look at read verse 1 and 2 of 1 Kings 21. Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel, beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near my house. And I will give you a better vineyard for it, or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. Let's pray. Father, open up our minds and hearts to this scripture. It's an interesting story, one that seems to be a parenthesis as we go through what's going on with Elijah. But yet there's an important lesson for all of us as we look at injustice in life and how we're to confront it, how we're to respond to it. So give us wisdom. Let me speak words that are edifying. Let us know the difference between just my mere opinion and the truth that is in your word. And Father, I pray there be no distractions. May the Spirit work in a mighty way and that we would respond to His work. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. So with any good story, let's look first at the starring characters that are written here and found within its pages. First, you see King Ahab. 
His covetousness, greed, his sullenness, and his self-centeredness is on full display. You have evil Queen Jezebel's cruelty, her political machinations, and her vengeful spirit take center stage. We find Naboth, the neighbor, who is shown to be a God-fearing and honest farmer who's caught in Jezebel's web. We'll read a little bit of the cowardly city leaders who are coerced into participating in Jezebel's evil plan. We'll find the worthless men or the scoundrels who willingly obey Jezebel by falsely accusing Naboth of capital crimes. We find the clueless citizens who stone Naboth to death. And then into the picture, we'll see Elijah, the prophet of God, who once again confronts King Ahab about his sinful rebellion against God. And of course, we see Yahweh, the great and wonderful Trinity, the God who is over all. The setting takes place in Naboth's vineyard, the palace and the city of Jezreel. The plot is where King Ahab is desiring his neighbor's vineyard that is close to his, and he offers a man an offer that he can't refuse. However, the man does, declining, uh, declining King Ahab's offer, propelling Ahab into a pity party worthy of a toddler. He's vexed and sullen, and he dejectedly goes to his room, refusing comfort and food. His wife, the evil Queen Jezebel, enters the scene to find out what the problem is, and immediately she offers a drastic and evil solution to Ahab's problem. Kill Naboth, the neighbor. She then proceeds to put her devious plan into motion. Either bribing or threatening the city leaders, she orders them to have a citywide feast and have two scoundrel men make a scandalous slander against Naboth, then to have him stoned to death. And what we read is her plan works like an evil charm. And she reports the good news to the king in verse 15 of chapter 21. Read with me. When she says, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive, but dead. At this point, I'm sure that Jezebel is feeling smug. And Ahab is happy as he takes possession of another man's property, thinking that it was good to be the king. No one to answer to, your every wish granted, and everyone willing to do whatever you ask them to do, even the most despicable of chores. However, however, once again, God intervenes by sending Elijah to confront them, pronounce judgment, and proclaim the sentence of death for their actions and their attitudes and their nature. And once again, I want to give you this definition. If you're taking, make, taking notes, you need to understand what sin is. Sin is our failure to conform to God's moral law in our attitudes, in our actions, in our nature. It's important for us to understand that many times we think of sin as our actions. These things that we do outwardly to someone else or disobey God's word. And that is true. It's, it's our actions. It's the things that we do. It's our behavior. And so what we try to do is we do behavior modification. And parents, I want to encourage you, I always say this when I share this type of information, your job is not to modify your children's behavior. That's what our penal system is trying to do, and it's an abject failure. You see, the problem is, is the reason why you and I do these bad behaviors the reason why you and I sin, disobey God, is because of our attitude. It's our heart. We desire evil things. And just as, you know, just as we look at through Scripture, you see that it's not so much the action. The sin begins in where? Jesus said, in our heart. For it's not just what you do on the outside. It's what you're thinking on the inside. So we should not be surprised that King Ahab and evil Queen Jezebel their actions show sin. It's because their attitude. But then we must not be surprised that their attitude, it's not just an attitude adjustment. So if we fail in behavior modification, then we think, well, what we need is you need an attitude adjustment. Did your dad ever say that to you? Or some type of teacher? You need an attitude adjustment. That was the big word back when I was young. You need an attitude adjustment. And that is true. 
But the problem is, it's not our attitude. The problem is that you and I have failed to conform to God's law in our nature. What, is, what does the Bible say? That a leopard cannot change his what? Spots. The reason why you and I sin behaviorally, the reason why that we can obey our parents, but yet in our heart we're angry, is because of our nature. So what we're seeing here is Nahab and, and Jezebel, they can't change their behavior, they can't change their heart attitude, is because of their nature. Now this is all free, I'm not going to charge you for this at all, this is all free. It's not even part of the message, it's just like it's a good time to throw it in there. And so what we see here is that their failures, that they're, they're about to be sentenced for the death of their sin. And it's not just their actions. It's their attitude. And it's not just their attitude. It's their very nature. Hence why we believe that the only solution to man's problem of sin is a new heart, is a new nature, is a change within us. Now, plot. The plot devices. How does it move? Now, there's some questions here as we look at chapter or verse 1 and 2. It seems like he's given, uh, King Ahab gives him kind of a, a, a very good offer. But what is it that's going to propel us forward? The question that we have to ask is how will Naboth respond to what seems like at first a very generous offer? Should he obey or not obey the king? Would he not, if he obeyed the king, would he not be given a better land? And better crops? Would he not even think, hey, if I give the king what he wants, maybe I'll have better influence with the king. These are all things that might come into his mind. However, what we discover is that Naboth was faithful to the Lord. And you may ask, well, how in the world was he faithful to the Lord by saying no to King Ahab? Knowing the behavior and the attitudes and the actions of King Ahab, wouldn't you and I at first say, yeah, let's get him, let's sell it. Who knows how he might react? That's not a neighbor that I want to have. And here's something that you and I have to understand. This is why it's so important for us to understand the Old Testament and the law of God. Now, last year, you and I quickly went through, what, 10, 11 weeks through the book of Leviticus. And what you and I need to understand is that the land was more than just some type of real estate to Naboth or to the Jew or to the Israelite of that day. The land of itself was more than just a possession, something that he could sell and buy and acquire wealth. You see, then the land was actually hidden as his inheritance from the Lord. If you want to go back, Leviticus chapter 25, I'm going to go real quick. Is the Bible tells us, and this is what God is saying to Moses in verse 23 of Leviticus 25. It says, The land shall not be sold in perpetuity. For the land, God says, is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. In other words, the land did not really belong to Naboth, but belonged to the Lord. They were just tenants of the land. Going to Numbers verse 36 and verse 7. Again, God tells the Moses and the Israelites, He says, the inheritance of the people, the land that I'm about to give to each of your families, shall not be transferred from one tribe to another. Now from Judah to Simeon, now from Benjamin to, to Issachar. For every one of the people of Israel, it says, shall hold on to the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. You see, they were not to sell the land for more than what was the seven years. And then it was to revert back. At the end of 50 years, all debts were repaid and all land back. In other words, God says, this is a land I'm giving to you that we saw in the book of Judges, or excuse me, Joshua. And then he says, now keep that. That is yours. But if it's not yours to hold or to keep forever, it is my land. I am giving it for you to take care of. You see, so what Ahab is asking of Naboth is really against the very commands of God. He wasn't asking, hey, can you lend me your land or lease me your land for seven years so I can have a vegetable garden and in seven years you can have it. No, he's saying, give me your inheritance from the Lord. Naboth has a decision to make. 
Now, compromise is easy. Satan is always trying to make you and I an offer or a counteroffer to God's law and promises. That's what Satan did there with Adam and Eve. That's what Satan did with Jesus in the wilderness. That's what he does to you today. God gives you a promise. God tells us what you and I should do. And God says, do this. And then Satan comes and says, why don't you give me your vineyard? Why don't you give me your land? Now, obviously, we're not talking of a land that's a possession that you and I have, but something of our heart, something of our mind. But Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. What would Naboth do? You'll see it here on the screen. He courageously and confidently said, I will obey God's word in defiance of dire circumstances and dangerous consequences. This is the very same thing that we've seen Elijah do from passage to passage to courageously and confidently obey God's word in defiance of whatever the certain circumstances are, no matter what the consequences are. Hence, what you and I have been learning is that you and I, in a world that's hostile to our faith, to our way of living, to our way of life, you and I must courageously and obediently obey God's word confidently. He knew the consequences. He's put in a dire circumstance. Obey the king or not to obey the king. Obey God or not to obey God. Circumstances he knows is dangerous. He knows King Ahab and Queen Jezebel are evil or wicked can do whatever they want, and they have the power of life and death. But in spite of all that, Naboth stays faithful to God's word. So then the question is, to keep things moving within the story, is how will Ahab respond? Now you and I know Ahab is just all over the place. But what we see is that the king responds with the temperament and the actions of a two-year-old toddler. Verse 4 records his infant behavior. Look at verse 4. Ahab went into his house, vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreel had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my father. So what did he do? He lay down on his bed and turned away his face, and he would eat no food. There's a temper tantrum. There's a big, big little baby. So then here comes the biggest question. We know Ahab's character. It's been shown. But how will Jezebel respond? She's the iron in this marriage. She's the fire in his belly, so to speak. She's the one that will be propelled into action. Well, she sticks true to her form and her character, and she begins devising an evil scheme to acquire that vineyard. Her evil knows no bounds, and Jezebel has no qualms and killing an innocent man. The problem that we see here compared to Naboth is that Ahab and Jezebel have no regard for God's law. They disregard God's law. As you and I have seen before in Deuteronomy, the kings were responsible to know and to rule by, rule by God's law. Deuteronomy chapter 17 and says that when the king sits in his throne, he shall write for himself a book of the copy of the law. Remember, we had saw this, and it was to be approved by the Levitical priest. And it shall be with him, and he shall read God's law all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord by keeping all the words of the laws and statutes and doing them. In other words, Ahab was responsible for knowing Leviticus 25 for knowing Numbers 36. He knew what God's law said. And why were they right to words and keep them? So that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandments, either to the right or to the left, so that he may continue long in the kingdom. Not only that, but he and his children. And what we're going to see is because they have no regard for God's law, God's judgment is coming on him. And then I'm going to give you a pastoral note. I believe the same thing. It may seem that the wicked are prospering in this day of age. But let me tell you, for those who have 
no regard for God's law. Justice, judgment is coming. You see, God's view of kingship was for the king to rule in righteousness and justice as God's mediators on the earth. They were to protect and nurture their subjects, not to take and to kill them. Instead, their view was to take what you want and to rule with an iron fist. Look at verse 7 of chapter 21 of 1 Kings. Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you not now govern Israel? Arise, eat your bread, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. And in verse 14, we read those tragic words. Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. But then in verse 15, as soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, she said to Ahab, Take a rise, the possession of it. Look at verse 16. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was a dead, he rose to, to down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, to take possession of it. There was no repentance. There was no regret. He gratefully and, 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 and excitedly went to take what was not his. What was his brother's? But then the last one is, how will Yahweh respond? We can understand Naboth well, almost, he's faithful to God knowing what it's going to cost him, or at least suspecting what it might cost him. We understand Ahab and Jezebel, they want what they want and they'll do anything to get it. You and I can understand it because that's how you and I are, especially when it comes to sin and something we desire, something we want to possess. But what about Yahweh? What about God? Will he continue to overlook their evil deeds? I mean, they've been continuing for years with this type of behavior, with this type of character. Is he going to continue to allow them to do what they're doing? Or is God going to finally put an end to rebellion against the law? Remember, they had killed over 400 or more uh, uh, prophets of God. What else is God going to allow them to do? Surprisingly, God intervenes by pronouncing both judgment and grace, or I should say, not unsurprisingly. Read with me silently, starting in verse 18. As God sends Elijah back into the picture to confront King Ahab, he says to Elijah, Arise, go down and meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has taken possession. So here we are, we're now back in Jezreel, we're, we're here in the, in the vineyard. Where, uh, where King Ahab is probably saying, well, tear this down, put this, do this. He's rearranging, ready to make his vegetable garden. And in verse 19, God said, You shall say to him, Thus saith the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus saith the Lord, In this place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. What a strong indictment. And now jump to verse 23. And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, The dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. And anyone, who, and, and anyone of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. So if the question is, how will Yahweh react to this once again? Will he overlook it? Will he let time pass? What we see is that Yahweh doesn't mince words in his pronouncement of judgment against this evil, corrupt couple. What we finally read, what you and I have been wondering when would happen, what you and I are, are wanting to happen, anyone who's reading this, is that they get their just desserts. Or should we say the birds and the dogs get their just desserts? This is the kind of reading that you and I like to read. We have a friend, uh, Don and I do, and, and his, it's pretty much, pretty much known. If you go to a movie, you watch a TV series, and if it has a bad ending, he is not going to enjoy it. Do not even let him go. Remember the movie uh, Million Dollar Baby? Uh, anybody remember that movie with Clint Eastwood and the, the woman boxer? He enjoyed that movie till the end when the woman got hit and, 
and wound up being paralyzed or something. I, I think that was the first time I realized, don't tell, tell him not to go to movies. He doesn't like bad endings. You and I don't like that. We want to see the white hats come out, right? We want to see justice done. We want to see uh, the tables turned against those big, powerful people who abuse their positions. That's what you and I want. So I want to think about two main thoughts as we look and read this passage. And we question, what is Naboth going to do? What is King Ahab and Queen Jezebel? What is Yahweh going to do here? What's Elijah? Because what this brings up is we're looking for justice. And you and I live in a world that is crying out, where is justice? Whether it's Facebook or news or Twitter, Everyone's wanting justice. However, you and I all describe and define justice as something different. When will it come? There's two main thoughts. The first one is the justice against the evildoer. That's what most of us are looking for. If someone is killed or hurt by someone else, we want justice. And we understand that. It may seem that the wicked are prospering. It may seem that justice is lost. That she's more than blind. She's not even involved and engaged in society anymore. But let me share with you, the scripture tells us that you and I must rest assured that the evil doer, the wicked, will receive their just recompense. That there will be justice. You and I ask, well, why didn't God step in earlier? Why didn't he stop Naboth from being killed? If he was a faithful man of God, if he was obeying God, then why does God's justice not prevent some of these things from happening? And I agree with you. Why does Naboth have to die for a piece of land? That's a good question. And you and I may be thinking the same thing. Why is it that it seems like good, bad things happen to good people? Where is God's justice in that? Maybe you experienced in your own family with a tragedy, with a death, or some type of terrible incident. Liam Goldberger writes in his study of, of uh, Elijah. He shares that the Bible has three answers to why God delays justice. The first is God delays final judgment, the final judgment, because of mercy. In other words, He's giving us the opportunity to repent. And I'll have to say that I'm thankful for that type of delay. For without that type of delay, God would have every right to take me as soon as I became aware of my sin and His judgments and His, and His, and His will. Would He not? Would not you and all of us, do we not fall under God's justice as sinful people? Have we not uh, failed to conform to God's law in our actions and attitudes and nature? I'll take an amen. Or I'll take an oh me. I'll take a white flag and say I surrender. You and I must understand that. So I'll take that type. It should encourage us to turn to God for mercy and forgiveness. So God's final delay of justice is so that others may come to know Him. Delayed justice, you and I must also understand that God's delayed justice reveals His wrath actually against human wickedness. Now that's counterintuitive to us, but it's God's kindness, Scripture tells us, that stops us from doing what we want. God's anger that lets us go on as we wish. You and I must understand that. Scripture tells us that it's His kindness that leads us to repentance. When you and I hearts are regenerated, it's that God is coming and moving our hearts as His kindness to allowing us to see His beauty and His wonder and His majesty for the very first time. Once we understand God's grace, and His being rich in mercy, it moves our hearts towards Him. Whereas God's anger allows us to continue. It's what we find in Romans 1, and it says that He gave them over. He gave them over to a depraved mind. He gave them over to a depraved heart. He gave them over to depraved affections. This should warn us to turn to God for mercy and forgiveness. 
So many times his delayed justice is a gospel opportunity for us to share the gospel and God's love and mercy when something tragic happens in the world or to someone. And they're questioning, where is God in this? Where is God's justice in this? It's an opportunity for you and I to share the gospel, God's love to disobedient, rebellious children. But thirdly, delayed justice shows us that God's judgment is true by showing us that sin is truly evil. And this is a tough one. If you and I never saw injustice, if the world never saw how evil is prevalent, then there would never be any turning towards the good. It seems like Israel is blind to King Ahab and Queen Jezebel's sin. I mean, look at it. It seems like they really don't care. What happens after Elijah and the, and the, and the Israelites kill the 450 prophets of Baal that we saw earlier, two chapters before? They get more. As you and I go back to chapter 22, those prophets, there are new, new recruits. They continue to follow this. When sin flourishes, it also worsens. And you and I are recipients of that today as we see our culture transformed by the most decadent of sins and passions. As we see laws being codified that are truly hostile to our faith. You and I have to realize that sin is something that many times that God uses to open the minds of those that do not see it. You see, Scripture promises, it's here on the monitor in Revelation 28, 1, verse 8. God promises, but for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestables, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, the liars, all that we see here in 1 Kings 21, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Psalms 55 says, But you, O God, will cast them down into the pit of destruction. Men of blood and treachery shall not live out half their days. You and I must realize that Scripture is there. And on the monitor, once again, Revelation 20, verse 12. I saw the dead, great and small, John writes, standing before the throne, and the books, he says, were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they have done. There will be justice against the evildoers. You and I must trust God in that. Naboth had to trust God when he confidently and courageously obeyed God in defiance of circumstances and consequences. This is in God's hand. Hence why I said at the beginning we can rejoice. Hence the little blurb there I put on your bulletin is you and I must realize and be content that you and I are in God's hands at all times. Even when it seem, seems like sin is rampant. But the second point I want to think of is justice for the righteous. <clears throat> is there justice for the righteous? What about those that have been, been compelled upon, those who have been hurt by the actions and the decisions by others? What about the neighbors of the world? Has God forgotten His long-suffering people? I'm glad to share with you, He has not. And He has not forgotten you in your pain. He has not forgotten you in your hurt. You and I may not see justice done in this world, or you and I may not receive the reward for our obedience in this age as Naboth did not. Yet God has promised in Revelation 21 that the one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. Naboth may have lost his inheritance. He may have lost his lamb. He may have lost his life. But let me tell you, he has gained a relationship with his Father in heaven. Hebrews 5.9 says, Being made perfect, that Jesus became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. 
And then we hold on to Romans chapter 8, verse 1, where he says, There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You and I must understand that there is justice for the righteous. It may not happen in this world, but God has promised us that justice will happen for you and I. God would write, will write all wrongs. He will heal all hurts. And that may be difficult to think of in the future, but still live through this life. But Liam Gorham reminds us the importance of trusting and obeying when he writes this on the, it's, I think this is on the monitor, this little quote. In this world, God's people suffer. In this world, you and I need to understand that God's people will suffer. But by trusting in Jesus, our suffering Savior and our perfect judge, you and I are able to keep obeying God. You remember the old hymn, I hope, trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to what? Trust and obey. What does Naboth do to his dying breath? He trusts and obeys. Think of Elijah responding to God's word. You want me to go talk to Ahab now after he just killed someone? After I just killed 450 of her prophets? But what does he do? He courageously and confidently obeys God's word despite the dire circumstances, in spite the, the, the dangerous circumstances. That is what God has called you and I to do. Now this is beautifully captured in Psalms 37. And I want you to take a moment to turn to it. If you have your Bibles, please. Because I believe there's some things you need to highlight, underline, circle, and understand. Look at Psalms 37. In verse 1, David beautifully captures what Liam is writing here about suffering, about trusting and obeying, about understanding justice against evildoers and justice for the righteous. He says, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. In other words, don't fret because they're in your life and because they're in this world. And don't worry and don't be envious because it seems like they're prospering. He says, for they will soon fade like grass and wither like the green herb. But listen what he says. I love this. Trust. You may just want to circle and underline this. Trust in the Lord and what? Do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Make it your companion. Embrace it as a friend, faithfulness, obeying God's word. He goes on to say, delight yourself in the Lord, in doing right, in God's word. Why? Because he will give you the desires of your hearts. And lastly, commit your ways to him. Be a Naboth. Trust in him. And it says he will act. These are the promises. You and I can trust that God will rule in righteousness and that justice will be done. Now that may mean that you and I trust and obey when it doesn't seem like it. It may mean that we must be patient, waiting for God's justice and righteousness. The promises, our hope, is that you and I expectantly wait for that day. Now what we see here is that God is calling us to confront injustice. He hasn't called us to be silent. You and I should be ones that are standing up. And it's unfortunate that many times the church has not stood up when it's when injustice is being done. Whether it's those that are being killing the, the unborn, whether it was slavery in the day, whether it's whatever type of injustice might be happening, we must confront it. It's important today that Christians continue to teach people about God's judgment for those who disobey those who will not conform to God's law and their actions and their attitudes and their nature. Now, you and, I may, you and I may feel discomfort with the Bible's teaching about judgment, and we're under pressures, pressures even from other Christians, to minimize or ignore it. It used to be in my day that uh, you would go to watch any baseball or any sporting event, and you would see some guy with rainbow hair holding up a sign that said John 3.16. Today, do you know what sign you're more likely to see? It's actually the most popular Bible verse right now is. Does anyone want to guess? 
Matthew 7, 7. Judge not lest you be judged. The thing is, is they've crossed out the rest of that passage of Scripture. And so we're all, do not judge anyone. That's what the Bible says. However, that's not what the Bible, biblical context is. And so now we're, we're discomforted. We don't, we don't want to make judgments. We don't want to tell anyone how they should live their lives. But it's unloving to do so, to minimize or to ignore it. You and I need, in other words, you and I need to share with others that the day of judgment will happen. It's not a myth. It's not a metaphor. It's not a medieval uh, acronym that now is superseded by science and technology. The proof of this is Jesus' resurrection from the dead, which shows that Jesus is without sin and death could not keep him. And he's uniquely equipped now to judge everyone. Yes, God is patient, but there is an end to his patience. Cahab's experience shows this. In Matthew 16, it says, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according what he has done. What's unfortunate is that many of you and I are going to be guilty of silence, of turning a blind eye to the injustice done by those who willingly disobey God's command. We must lovingly share the gospel. We must lovingly tell them judgment is coming. It's like you and I standing, watching someone riding down the middle of the road or crossing the street, and they don't see a vehicle that's ready to hit them. And you and I say, well, it must be unloving to yell at them. I don't want them to think that I'm mad at them. I don't want them to think that I'm angry. What if I startle them? What if I make them feel bad? As we watch them get smashed by the car. You and I are doing that every day. We're allowing people to go to hell in a handbasket because we don't want to be discomforted. We don't want to have uh, any type of pressure on us. It's easier for us to just let them go there. Number two, the day of judgment demonstrates God's justice. God will put right every hurt suffered by every victim. If there is no day of judgment, people could rightly accuse God of being unjust. And I know there are people here that are hurting or you have been hurt from your past or from your present. Or even looking and saying, I know hurt is coming. But one pastor said that God does not waste a hurt and that's so true. God will heal all things. Your suffering one day will come to an end. And God will put his balm of love and peace upon you. And that's what we need to share with others. For there are many that are angry with God, angry at the church, hateful towards Christians. And many times we have rightly uh, have been accused of that because we have not been loving, we have not been compassionate, we have not been kind. However, we must reach out to those that are hurting and let them know that God's day of judgment is coming and he will make all things right. We think of that scripture that says that there will be one day where he'll wipe every tear from their eye and there'll be no more sorrow, there'll be no more death and we will be with God. That is the hope that you and I have to those that are hurting. So you have much to say. The day of judgment has much to say, not only to the evildoer, but those who are looking for vindication and for justice. And then third, the threat of inescapable judgment convinces people, will convince some people, I should say, of their need of a Savior. However much we tell people about Jesus, they will not turn to Him if they do not see their need of a Savior. We live in a day and age where we allow everyone, and we confirm this, and then we even approve of it. Yes, live out your truth. Live out the way you see your life. However, that is not the Christian way. It is unloving to allow people to go in blindness, groping around, trying to find a way of life. The Bible says that we must all appear for the judgment seat of Christ. And we will all stand and give account for what we've done in body, whether good or evil. That judgment is a warning. It is a wake-up call. It is kind of like, what, what is those things, those things that you start a heart with? I think I should know that. I see it all the time. But you know, when you put your heart and you jumpstart someone's heart. 
That's what the day of judgment is. That's why he says in James, some you will save scarcely by the fire of their, of their britches, so to speak. Uh, that's Rob's paraphrase. Yeah, sometimes we need to scare them. Not in an emotional, manipulative way. Let them to know that sin has its way. So confronting injustice is something that God will do and God has called us to do as Elijah's. We're to do so. Now I want to give you the epilogue. Every good story has an epilogue. Justice does finally come to the house of King Ahab. I want you to turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 22. We're going to look at just a couple passages real quickly. 1 Kings chapter 22, I think you might be there. Look at verse 37. So the king died. He went to battle. He dies in battle and he was brought to Samaria. And they buried the king in Samaria. And listen to this. And they washed the chariot that he was riding by the pool of Samaria. And the dogs licked up his blood. And the prostitutes washed themselves in it according to the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord came. He paid for his misdeeds. Now look at 2 Kings chapter 9. Go a couple more pages through a couple chapters. Now there's a new king. It's Jehu. He comes to Jezebel. Jezebel is still alive. She hears of it. She's running from him because he's now proclaimed himself as king. She paints her eyes. She adores her head. And she looks out the window. She thinks, well, you know what? I'll just seduce him. And I'll become his queen. And he'll let me live. But as Jehu entered the gate of verse 31, she says, Is it peace, uh, you Zimri, you murderer of your master? I don't think those are probably the opening words that she should have gave, but you know that's her. In verse 32, he lifted up his face to the window and he said, Who is on my side? Who is on my side? And two or three eunuchs looked out at him. And he said, Throw her down. So they threw her down, and some of the blood spattered on the wall and on the horses, and they trampled her. And he said, now, see this to this cursed woman and bury her, for she's a king's daughter. Verse 35, but when they went to bury her, they found no more of her than her skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. When they came back and told him, then the word of the Lord is done, which is spoken by his servant Elijah. In the territory of Jezreel, the dog shall eat the flesh of Jezebel. She was eaten by dogs. Nothing left but her skull and the palms of her hands. And the corpse of Jezebel should be dung on the face of the field, so that no one can say, This is Jezebel. Both King Ahab and Queen Jezebel get their just desserts. In 2 Kings chapter 10, very quickly, you see that Ahab has 70 sons. Jehu sends a letter that says, Kill them. And what we find in verse 7. As soon as the letter came, they took the king's son and they slaughtered them, 70 persons. And they put their heads in a basket and sent them to Jezreel. And as we come to 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 11, the end of King Ahab, his wife, his children, and his friends is recorded. So Jehud struck down all who remained of the house of Ahab and Jezreel, all his great men, all his close friends, all his priests, until he left none remaining. God's justice was done. Not in our timetable, not in Naboth, probably not in Elijah's, but God's timetable was done. Justice was complete. Now, God's judgment may not be swift according to your timetable, but let me encourage you, it is always sure. Trust and obey. Courageously and confidently Obey God's word despite the dire circumstances and despite and defiance of the dangerous consequences. For God's justice will be done. Let me give you some last words. Not that we see Jesus in all things, but I'm struck that we do still see Jesus here. Jesus, unlike King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, rules in righteousness with justice. And that ought to lift up our hearts Jesus, like Naboth, obeyed God despite the circumstances and consequences of the cross. And Jesus, like Elijah, boldly confronted injustice through his suffering on the cross and the resurrection from the dead, the innocent for the guilty. 
And Jesus, like the Father, offers grace and forgiveness to those who generally repent. And you may notice that we didn't get through all of 1 Kings chapter 22. There's some inter chapter 21. There's some interesting things that happened that we didn't cover that we're going to cover next week as little parentheses in our study of Elijah. We got about two weeks left. I want to encourage you to be here for those as well. So join with us here as we just bow our head. The worship team come up. So I want us to take a moment to pause and to think about justice and injustice. Would you consider God's word of what he has to say and about the purpose of God's delayed justice, but yet also his promise that justice will be restored, that righteousness will be done? Would you pray? And maybe it's time for you to confess times in which you didn't trust and obey God. Maybe there's times which you're questioning God's justice and righteousness because of this delay. And then to respond, maybe just giving thanks that God's justice was delayed, that you may come in repentance and know Him. For God's justice delayed even for those children of His. Let's take a moment and pray, would you please? God, you are so good. And Father, we should be about confronting injustice. Let us have the strength and the courage of the Naboths who would, who would obey you despite any circumstances, any consequences. Let us stand for your word. Father, when injustice does appear or we're affected by it, let us cry out to you, the one who is the avenger, the one who will rule in righteousness. And Lord, let that be our hope and our courage and our strength is that we know that we may not see it in this day, but we know that justice will reign in your life and in, in through you and through your decisions. Let us trust and obey in all circumstances. We pray for the strength and that hope to be given to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to ask our two elders. They'll be here at the end of the service. If you'd like to come and pray, they'll be back up here so you can share with them. If you want to know how you too can know Christ, Maybe it's the point where you need to understand uh, how justice can be done uh, for you through Christ's sacrifice on the cross. They can share that with you. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.